0: Listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Good morning, Faith Church. This is Tom and Don Waltz uh, joining you this morning, and so happy to worship with you as we work through the Passion season towards the celebration of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Be sharing with you from Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6 this morning with our grandson Cal. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows; yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions; he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Y'all, it's been a year. It's been one year since we worship together normally without masks, without seats spread out, without uh, keeping one another at arm's length. We were singing, we were hugging, we were, we were celebrating together. I mean, back then I could preach a 45-minute long sermon. It's been a year since things were, were normal. The first a couple of months of, of the pandemic were difficult for all of us as we you know we all went through that that uh, whiplash between this is no way this thing's going to be a big deal to like everything is shut down like today those first couple of months I know we were all looking forward to like uh, 14 days to flatten the curve here comes the summer we'll be out of mass we'll be back out we'll be we'll be where, you know back to normal by the summer but it, it didn't happen Uh, For for some of us and for our family, those first couple of months weren't just uh, the stories of of our own lockdown, but they were stories of the griefs of losing loved ones. Uh, In early May, we found out that Jenna's grandmother had contracted COVID in her uh, nursing home. It was one of the early, you know, those early tragic stories where a meat processing plant, you know, the COVID swept through this plant and one of the workers brought it home, gave it to his wife, who was a nurse's aide at the care facility where Jenna's grandmother was. Uh, a third of the residents on her grandmother's floor contracted COVID and died from it. And uh, we got the call on May 9th that Jenna's grandmother had gone to be with Jesus. She was 95. Uh, So we weren't surprised. I mean, every winter we kind of thought, like, this is probably the year that flu or pneumonia or something takes Grandma because she's, you know, weaker every year. So we weren't surprised, but we still grieved. Uh, But more than even just grieving, I think what surprised us was our anger, We were mad. And and Jenna Jenna said it best, my wife. She said it best uh, shortly after we received the news that grandma had died. She said, I hate that now grandma's name will be forever tied to this horrible, horrible disease. So because of COVID, grandma isn't a person anymore. Now she's a statistic. I've thought often in the months since then of her comment. It keeps bringing back into my own mind this, this fear. It's a real terrible fear that, that something that happens to me, something out of my control, something that I can't stop, that I can't prevent, that I can't change, some tragedy may happen to me that will be the defining event in my life, the thing that is, you know, has the last word in my story. Then, of course, my brain goes darker and thinks, oh man, there could be something, not something that happens to me, but something that I do that could be the last word in my story. I don't know if that's a commonly shared fear or if I am just more morbid and morose than most of you. Uh, But I got to imagine there are quite a few of us who are concerned or or lay awake at night wondering if that thing that happened to us, that tragedy, that diagnosis, that you fill in the blank, is that going to be the thing we're always known for? Maybe there's many more of us who lay lay awake at night wondering if that thing that we have done will be the thing that defines our stories. The words that you heard read already from Isaiah 53 are, well, they're words that tell us with, uh, with just incredible poetic insight how God intends to bring a wandering world back to Him, but they are also words that show us in that visceral way that only poetry can exactly what God was willing to go through so that that nothing done to us, nothing we've had to go through, nothing we've had to endure, nothing we've had to put up with, nothing that has befallen us, So that nothing done to us and nothing done by us will ultimately define us. If you're writing anything down, write that down because that's what I'm going to keep coming back to over and over in the next 20 minutes or so. Nothing done to us and nothing done by us will ultimately define us. That's the message of these three verses. And we're looking only at these three verses because that's all we need to look at uh, to understand how God and His Son define us. Not what's been done to us and not what's, what's been done by us. So let's jump into verse 4 and take a, a closer look at these verses. 4, 5, and 6, by the way, of Isaiah 53 are the middle part of a five-part song about the servant, the servant with a capital S, the servant who 700 years later we'll find out is Jesus. And these, this song is about how that servant, how God is going to send that servant to rescue his people from exile, but almost immediately the scope of the song expands. It opens up and we realize this isn't just about rescuing Israel. This is about rescuing everyone. Not just rescuing Israel from exile, but rescuing everyone from our sin, and that comes through most clearly in this central stanza, this center of five stanzas that we're looking at, four, five, and six. Verses one through three, we looked at them last week, they sort of had this thread in them that Isaiah is predicting the people who see the servant show up for the first time miss it. And so, they explain, they explain how they missed it in verses 1, 2, and 3. He was despised. He was, he, he was sorrowful and full of grief. Why would we have expected that somebody with that much sorrow and grief is the person that God had chosen to rescue us? Verse 4, where we're picking up today, Isaiah writes, and, and he picks up this thread, but he sort of writes the moment of realization that they misinterpreted the situation, The moment when they look back and reinterpret what they saw in light of what they now know. Verse 4, surely he, the the servant, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet, we esteemed, we thought he was stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. You, You can see the realization dawning in this verse, almost as if Isaiah is saying, wait, he was a man of sorrows... Because he was carrying our sorrows. But he he was a man of griefs because he was bearing our griefs. That makes sense now. We thought he was being judged by God, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, for something that he had done, but that wasn't it at all. He was being judged by God for something that we had done, something that had been done to us. Let's camp on just this first line for a moment. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has borne is more literally a, he has lifted up our griefs, our sorrows, all the things that are done to us. He's lifted them up and he has carried them. More literally, he has shouldered them, put them on himself, borne that burden on himself, the burden of all the things that we have endured, all the things that we have suffered all the things we've gone through, all the, the griefs and the sorrows, the infirmities and the sufferings, the illnesses and the pain, all, all different ways translators have renders those words, griefs and sorrows, have, have the, the weight of all of them have been moved off of our backs and onto His shoulders. All of those things that we use, we use mass words, gravity words, uh, weight words as metaphors to describe, anything that you have said, this is weighing me down, anything of which you have said, it's a crushing burden, it's a crushing weight, anything to which you have given metaphorical solidity and heaviness in your life. This passage says, he has lifted it up off of your back and placed it on his shoulders. So, Isaiah writes in verse 4, saying, in some way that we don't yet fully understand until we see it in Jesus, that everything we've suffered, the griefs and the sorrows, all the things that have been done to us, all of the things that we have endured, (laughs) those unfulfilled quests for, you know, the rest that we never quite seem to find, the happiness that's always like just over the next hill. All of the tragic assaults, the injustices that we bear up under, all of all of the family breakdowns, all of the devastating diagnoses, all of the debilitating diseases, all of the crushing poverties, all of the marriages that have fallen apart, all of the heart-wrenching disappointments that are suffered by you and by us have been lifted off of our backs and onto His shoulders. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Which means anything you have gone through, anything done to you has been carried by Jesus. Let me put it the other way. Nothing done to us will ultimately define us. Nothing done to us, nothing we have had to go through will be the last word in our stories, will be the thing that, for which we are ultimately known. Oh, yeah, that person. Well, they're just A. Fill in the label for what they went through. Nothing done to us will ultimately define us. And that's just the first verse of three, as we continue on, there's more and even better news, not just that nothing done to us will ultimately define us, but also that nothing done by us will ultimately define us. This is even better news. Look at verse five. And running up to this verse, there's a bit of irony, right? At the end of verse four, like I said, Isaiah is saying we thought he was being judged for something he had done, he was actually being punished for something we had done. That realization comes in verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The transgressions and iniquities aren't words that we naturally go to to describe our actions that we regret, are they? We're much more likely to say something like, oh, I really messed up, I made a mistake, I made an unwise decision. I screwed up, if it's really bad. But Isaiah is not that, not that optimistic about human nature. His assessment of humanity is a lot more honest. You know, he, he doesn't give us any room for optimistic thinking, for believing that deep down inside we're all good, and if we just had a little more education or a few more resources or a little more opportunity, that that goodness would bloom forward and the world would suddenly somehow get better. He looks at words or he uses words like transgression and iniquity to describe our actions, I think and I have to imagine because, well, and I know this because it's, he kind of says it earlier, because he's looked inside of himself as well. And he's seen that transgressions and iniquities aren't just things that happen out there. Not just ways of describing the actions of those people in the other party or the other opinion or the other whatever. He says transgressions, iniquities, I mean, that describes myself, right? Transgressions is just this sense that if I could get away with it, then I want to try. How many of us bump the speedometer up five, six, seven, eight miles above the speed limit because there's no lights out in front of us that's gonna keep us from doing it? Transgressions, rebellions, iniquities. Iniquities is this word that that sort of means like a twisting, like a curving in on yourself, like a concave mirror that takes any energy that comes into it and focuses it on the single point Of the self says the the way he describes humanity is uh, you know what we are we're full of transgressions and iniquities he would agree with the the German philosopher Immanuel Kant writing 2500 years later uh, or maybe Kant would agree with Isaiah when he says out of the crooked timber of humanity no straight thing was ever made And if that's not, you know, discouraging enough, he piles on with a a metaphor in verse six about sheep. (laughs) Look at verse six. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. It's an incredible picture because it borders on the farcical. Like we are all dumb sheep, aimlessly wandering, following our noses to whatever smells like greener pastures. It would be funny if it weren't so painfully true and personally insulting. Uh, authors writing on this passage have said that the point of using sheep is, as an analogy is that they, they personify or exemplify within themselves aimless, purposeless, wandering rebellion. Basically saying like, life's pretty good here, but what about over there? And just wandering off in search of something better with no clear goal, no aim in mind, not even knowing if there's anything better over there, just sort of wandering off. (laughs) We don't, most of us, interact with sheep on a daily basis. So think of it more in terms of like your credit cards in your wallet. Uh, You don't want them to wander off for the same reason that a shepherd doesn't want his sheep to wander off. There's a lot of value wrapped up in those things. A more contemporary way of putting it would be something like, we're all like credit cards who don't want to be safe in a wallet and used wisely, but want to be left behind at the mall or at the gas station so anyone can use us. Transgressions, iniquities, aimless, purposeless rebellions, Isaiah saw that our need for rescue, our need for deliverance goes much deeper, much, much deeper than simply fixing our circumstances or rescuing us from the situation around us, from the things being done to us. We needed a deeper rescuing, a rescuing from the things done by us. We need a rescue from ourselves. So when this servant takes on our griefs and our sorrows, he ta- also takes on our transgressions and our iniquities. And because he has taken those on, the natural consequence of those things comes to him, piercing, crushing, chastising, wounding, Whereas the end of verse 6 says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, as, as we read those, those verbs and those verses, it, it can sound passive, like Jesus did nothing more than sort of like lay on us like a, the, the metal vest thing you wear when you're getting an x-ray, like, oh, I'll just sit here and I'll take all of the, you know, I'll take all of the x-rays that are coming your way. It, it's actually a much more active and threatening word than that. In the shepherding metaphor in verse 6, you know, sheep who have wandered off and gone astray have left themselves open to attack and to be being taken advantage of. And so what this, uh, what this verse is, is kind of picturing for us is that our own iniquities, so we're like the sheep. We've wandered off, and our own iniquities, the guilt of our own crookedness and bentness and rebellion, it, it is like bouncing back on us. We are at risk of being destroyed by the guilt of our own sinfulness until the shepherd steps in and takes the attack. See, the the three words laid on him are actually more of a military metaphor. It's more threatening than it sounds like originally. Another translation uh, says, the Lord caused the sin of all of us to attack him. Laid on him means a hostile encounter, like a, a barrage of arrows aimed at a single target. One writer says about it, each sin of every sinner would be like a separate wound in the heart of the man of sorrows. Arrows shot by us coming back at us until the shepherd steps between us and the guilt of our own sin. That's why this servant who would come would take the piercing and the crushing and the chastising and the wounding and the attack so that nothing done by us would be the last thing that's known about us. Nothing done by us will ultimately define us. It will not be the last word in our stories. which is the only way that this central line in verse 5, the last line of verse 5, can come true. With his wounds, we are healed. With his wounds, we are healed. Healed there, like a piece before it, is is a holistic word. It means all of us, every part of us. We are healed from all of the things that have been done to us and all the things that have been done by us, but there's a tension in the phrase too because... Healing is available to all, but not yet experienced by all. Which you could think of it like the COVID vaccine for where we are in our point in history right now. The vaccine exists and it is available to all of us, theoretically, and we have to wait our turn. It hasn't yet been experienced by all of us. Some have gotten it. Some people, you know, parents, grandparents, have gotten the vaccine and have gotten the healing, if you'll let me push the metaphor. It's available and experienced by them, available to us, but not yet experienced by us. Jesus has obtained for us the healing by his wounds. And as we more and more rely on him for that healing, we are healed. Which brings us full circle back to the beginning. I said the the one main expanded idea I'm starting with here is that nothing done to us and nothing done by us will ultimately define us. Why? Because everything done to us and everything done by us has been carried by Him for us. Everything done to us and everything done by us has been carried by him for us. So your griefs and your sorrows and everything that you've done that you can't undo and you can't make go away, all of your rebellions and iniquities and twisting in on yourself, all of the things that that you have done that, that have been done to you, they are not the end of your story. They're not what we will be ultimately known for. That's not the last line that will be written about us. If, if you have come to Jesus, to the servant, as your substitute who suffers for you, who bears these things for you. I mean, you guys know all of us come to some point in our lives where the realization sort of hits that there are things that have been done to us that cannot be undone. No amount of medicine, no amount of therapy, no amount of healing will undo some of the damage that we have absorbed uh, at the, uh, whether from the world around us or from people around us. And we come to points in our lives where we realize that that the things that we ourselves have done cannot be so easily undone. They can't be washed away. They can't be wiped away. They can't just be forgiven and forgotten. They're too deep. They're too heavy. They're too insidious for that. So when you hit that point, what are you going to do when the weight of all the things done to you and all the things you have done becomes too heavy to carry, too heavy to bear? What are you going to do? There's I think three options. The first is just to run away from others. Just run away from people. Say, you know what? As long as I'm not near the people that can hurt me and I'm not near anyone I can hurt, I'll be fine. I'm just going to withdraw. Live alone. It's the best I can. But then the, the part of you that's designed by God, the essential part of you that's designed to find full human life in relationship with others, that part shrivels and dies. That's not a, that's not a human response second option is to numb out. Just numb out, just try to shut off the pain. You know, there's, there's the not-so-great ways, like drugs and alcohol, uh, or endless video games and Netflix binges. But then there's the more socially appropriate ways of numbing out too, like working yourself almost to death, working like crazy, throwing your whole life and energy into something that you think is worthwhile that, that will help distract you from the pain of the things done to you, the things that you've done. Neither of those alternatives sound that great. Thankfully, there's a third option, which is to ask the servant, ask Jesus to shoulder the burden for you. And it's simple, but incredibly difficult. Because to do this, you have to be willing to admit that you have done things to other people. To yourself and to God that cannot be simply wiped away. And you have to admit that there are things that have been done to you that you are not strong enough to bear up under on your own, which really goes against the, you know, the way we're raised and taught to behave in our culture, that we can do it on our own. We can't. This sense that there are things that we have have done. The, the, The Bible calls that, it uses the word sin to describe it, or transgressions and iniquities and rebellions. If you are at the point where you can admit that you have sinned against God and against the people around you, if you can admit that the burden of what you have done to others and what has been done to you is too great for you to carry or for them to carry, then you're at the place where you can ask the servant to bear that burden for you. And all you have to do is call out to Jesus and ask him to take the burden of that sin on himself. We call out to Jesus and say, I have done so many things that I cannot make right. And even if I could make them right, the very act of doing them makes them not right. But Jesus, you came in order to take, to bear, to shoulder the load of my sin on yourself. So we name what we have done. We name what we can remember that we have done. And we believe that Jesus is the servant who came to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows to put himself between ourselves and our own sin. You say, Jesus, carry, carry these for me because I can't carry them myself. And when we do, then nothing done to us and nothing done by us will ultimately define us. Now, this is going to sound kind of silly, but one of the ways that I remind myself daily that Jesus stands ready to shift the burden of my sorrows and my griefs and my sins off of my back and onto his shoulders uh, is through a liturgy for the ritual of morning coffee. I got more laughs first hour. You guys might take it more seriously. I did not write this liturgy. Found it in a book called Every Moment Holy. I've got a nice art print of it next to my coffee station at home. But here's what, it's a prayer that while my coffee is percolating, the prayer is percolating in my mind and in my spirit. It's just a, it's a prayer for the morning that reminds me of of how God wants to take my sins and my sorrows on a daily basis. Here's how it goes. It starts out, meet me, O Christ, in this stillness of mourning. You have to get up before everyone else to pray that part. Move me, O Spirit, to quiet my heart. Mend me, O Father, from yesterday's harms. From the discords of yesterday, resurrect my peace. From the discouragement of yesterday, resurrect my hope. From the weariness of yesterday, resurrect my strength. From the doubts of yesterday, resurrect my faith. And from the wounds of yesterday, resurrect my love. Let me enter this new day aware of my need and awake to your grace, O Lord. Amen. It's a simple prayer that I use just to remind myself daily that Jesus stands ready to lift the sorrow and the guilt and the shame off of my back and put it on his shoulders. Because the truth is we're all weighed down by something. Either yourself or people you love are weighed down by some sorrows. And those sorrows aren't going away, not until Jesus comes and makes all sad things new, the remaking of the world at the end of days. So until then, between now and then, we are invited daily or hourly every moment to lay our burdens, our sins, and our sorrows, our guilts, and our shames on him. He stands ready. He stands ready to shift the burden off of your back and onto his shoulders. So the invitation is there. Won't you let me carry it? Let's pray. Father, we come to you confessing that our sins are too heavy for us to carry, that they are too real and present for us to hide, and that they are too deep. For us to undo so we ask that you would forgive us for what we even hesitate or tremble to name out loud that you would forgive us for what our hearts can no longer bear up under that you forgive us for what feels to us like a consuming fire of judgment upon every remembrance And Father, set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open up for us a future in which we can be changed. And grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness. We pray this through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.